Welcome to Nerds of the Roundtable, a podcast on a quest for quality pop culture. I'm Sammy. I'm Jamie. And I'm Dwayne. And gentlemen, tonight is my pick. Now, we've been doing all of these superhero movies. Now we're going back to horror sci-fi. And I'm really excited to get into this one. We're traveling back to that golden era of the 1980s. And we're going to be looking at John Carpenter's The Thing. Well, before we get too suspicious of ourselves, let's go ahead and keep it 100. It's time to keep it 100. 100. 100. 100. All right, gentlemen. So I'm going to lead this off. And this is what's going to be really funny because due to our pre-show conversation... So there is a new comedy on the Peacock streaming service called We Are Lady Parts. Now, this was originally produced for the UK, and it is a British comedy. Um, Lady Parts is actually the name of the show's all-female Muslim punk band. Uh, the show is written and directed by Nada Manzor. I knew that name because she directed a couple episodes of Doctor Who Series 12. Um, but I love how the show focuses on the diverse cultural backgrounds of these characters. They use this their punk music basically as their voice against the racism and sexism of Muslim women. And I just thought it was really cool. Um, the actors play their own instruments which is just amazing. Um, they have wonderful rousing ballads, such as Voldemort Under My Headscarf, and a great punk version of Dolly's 9 to 5. Now, like a lot of British comedy, uh, it is TVMA because of language, but this is punk rock. I'd be shocked if it didn't. Um, the first season's only six episodes. The first, by which is free if you have Peacock, but after that, it's either subscription or the seven-day trial. Uh, so if you're looking for a new television series that brings some comedy, music, and great characters, check out We Are Lady Parts on Peacock, and that's my Keeping It 100. If nothing else, that sounds eccentric and fun. <laughs> you know, I, I knew the, the music angle, and I thought that was kind of neat, you know, because you've got, you know, the women in the hijibs and, and all those types of things, and, and they're playing punk music. And I'm just like, this is kind of neat. And so I started watching it, and I just kind of got hooked on it. And like I said, six episodes, 20-some minutes apiece, busted through easy. I can't subscribe to another service. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. Seven day trial. <laughs> That's why I wanted to get it all in. <laughs> now I'll go back to the free version. <laughs> so. I can't do it. I've added another one recently. I, I found out there was a whole Formula One streaming service. Oh. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do another one. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm up next and I'm going to need some backup when I'm done. But here we go. Um, Superman Red Sun. Um, I found, recently I saw the advertisement for the movie. I think it came out fairly recently. Um, so I didn't watch the movie. I read the comic book. <laughs> um, and it was interesting. Um, it was written by Mark Millar, art by Dave Johnson and Killian Plunkett. It was a really interesting reimagining of what would have happened if, you know, Khalil had landed in Soviet Russia um, while, St while St Stalin was still living instead of America. And... It was interesting how they played with, um, like, what would, how would Lex have been different if he was, you know, if he was the hero of America, basically. And instead of fighting, like, the, the alien in his midst in Metropolis, it was this, became a, a world power um, kind of deal. And the and things that happened to Jimmy and Lois and how everything played out differently. And how different Superman would have been if he'd been raised on a Soviet commune. It was really interesting. Um... Even the stuff that doesn't work, and there's more than one thing that, <laughs> that doesn't work, it's even interesting how it goes sideways. Um, and also just the, like when, when everything gets fixed at the end, and they create this, you know, Mark Millar is apparently a vision of utopia. Even like utopian visions are really interesting. Like what they think is perfection, what they think is utopia. Even that's really revealing and interesting. Mm. And so, um, yeah, Superman Red Sun. 
it, I, th- I think it's still, I think it's in Comicsology Unlimited right now. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got a subscription, you can get easy access to it that way. Superman Red Zone. Cool. Um, is the movie good? Uh, is it compare? It is. It's pretty decent. It is. Um, you know, what that's part of is DC was doing a series of Elseworlds books, and that was kind of one of them. Um, they did uh, one where Batman is basically fighting Jack the Ripper, uh, Gotham by Gaslight. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that was Elseworlds. Uh, and that Same was one of the deal. first Elseworlds. Okay. And then they did this whole series. And so you've got, you know, maybe where... Superman, you know, Clark Kent becomes Batman or, you know, you've got those whole swerves. But Red Sun's a really good one. Uh, And it's that Red Scare era and it gets into Stalin and and all that. So it's a a fun read. And and like I said, the cartoon's pretty decent. Does it follow the same storyline? It does. It does. It it does. Uh, I like Batman with the... uh, Kind of the, the Russian hat with the flaps on it. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> cool look. That's actually the one thing that I don't think doesn't quite work. Like, I know, why but is, it's cool. Why are the Waynes randomly living in Moscow instead of Gotham? It's like the one thing they just... We, right. we have to have Batman or Superman, so like we'll just do that. Hmm. Everything else, like the, on, the only thing that's different is Superman's had landed in Russia. Yeah. Everything else is the same. He's the one thing, except they, just, they had to have Batman there. So I'm like... Well, I, I thought that we were doing the one thing, like the one Twilight Zone thing. I don't know. Then they had Wonder Woman there, and then... But she was still on, you know, Paradise yeah. Island or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, it was just... That, that kind of bothered me. Like, why is Bruce Wayne in Moscow, guys? Because he's Batman. <laughs> anyway, sorry. I didn't mean to belabor that. <laughs> well, my keeping it 100 is something that we've kind of talked about a little bit. I'm not sure how much on Mike, but I recently reviewed the 2010 series of Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, um, <clears throat> which got me on a whole rabbit trail. Audible has the complete collection read by Stephen Fry, you know, for one credit, 62 hours and change. Thankfully, it's broke up into six parts. <laughs> So you can download sections by section. So that's what I'm doing. I'm working my way through this. I've just finished my first section and a little bit into the second one. And guys, this is masterfully told. These stories are so much fun. So, you know, getting into that Victorian era of England, the <clears throat> it, it's so weird to me because I've recently finished reading or listening to Dracula. How much of this style of writing is consistently like correspondence-based? You know, it's all like in memoir or letter mm-hmm. form, a lot of it, which is really kind of different from what I'm used to. But, uh, you know, getting into the Sherlock stories and especially after seeing the modern retelling, um, you know, with, with Cumberbatch is very, uh, very interesting and enlightening. So I can't review Sweet Tooth uh, this week, <laughs> which was going to be it because uh, one of my uh, hosts here uh, is still holding out on that with uh, their podcast, uh, which is a ton of fun. Um, but... Sherlock Holmes. Got a favorite short story? Uh, well, right now, I've only uh, the only short that I've been exposed to because it kind of like you have in each section. You have like uh, so far, if it's been like a long story and a short story. Then you have the next section, which is a long story and a short story. Um, so the only short story I've been exposed to so far is the uh, is the the Mark of Four, Sign of the Four. Sign of the Four. Yeah, I mean, which was great. Uh, you know, very interesting, uh, especially when you look at strata, class, and race in Victorian era of of uh, England. And you know, it was interesting to me too because um, the study in Scarlet really delves into the Mormon uh, mm-hmm. uh, migration across the states and kind of how their society. Uh, almost like a secret society in, in hierarchy is structured and how much that played into the case that wasn't uh, apparent or even, I don't even think, really examined in the uh, study in pink, uh, you know, the 2010 story. Yeah. Um, which I'm sure that was, you know, by choice and stuff they just probably didn't want to get into, along with some of like the systemic racial and, and class system things. You got a favorite one, Sam? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um I always like Scandal in Bohemia because I like the idea of um, oh what what's her name my mind blank now 
Um, you can't ask me. I could have told exactly, you. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. Uh, but but the the idea that that Sherlock gets infatuated with this woman. Oh yeah. Um, and and I just think that that's interesting. It's such a swerve on the character. Um, You're talking so, about Rachel McAdams. Yeah, the, yeah. That character. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. So. Uh, my my favorite has always been the redheaded league. Okay, it's just it kind of it's kind of different. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like the the plot is so ridiculous. It's kind of funny. Yeah. At the same time, so yeah. when you get to the redheaded league, yeah, it's it's yeah. been so Irene long Adler. since I've been exposed. Irene, yeah, yeah, it's been so long since I've been exposed to yeah. those stories. You know, uh, a lot of them aren't. You know, I, I know Hound the Bastard always comes to mind, uh, but uh, you know, as I'm going through these now, it's opening my mind to you know some stuff from a, a long while back. I just think it's interesting to see the development of detective fiction, especially when you start with Arthur Conan Doyle stuff, and then you look at Agatha Christie, and then even through detective fiction today, yeah. and how it's developed and changed. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, wondering about that too, because, you know, I wonder how much contemporaries, you know, some of these were, mm-hmm. how much overlap you had there, you know, with Perot and with, uh, you know, Holmes, right. uh, you know, I know they're, kind of slightly different eras, but they feel very similar in, in uh, you know, their mannerisms and, and things. But, uh, you know, speaking of something that's influential, we're talking about a 1982 movie from a very influential horror director, John Carpenter. The Thing. Opening thoughts and grades. Jamie. Okay. Um, this thing is... Very dated, <laughs> um, and I don't just mean like the <laughs> the apparel and the hats and all that kind of jazz. Um, I mean it looks old. I mean you you can tell this is not a modern movie, mm-hmm. um, and it's not a perfect movie by any means. Um, there's plot holes aplenty, um, and there's things that frankly don't make a lot of sense. But it's it's a locked kind of kind of a locked door mystery that really really works. Um, the tension is, is there. It's ratcheted up as the movie goes on. Um, the sci-fi angle doesn't always hold together, but it works. I mean, it's a, it's a great component for it. Um, like I said, not a perfect movie, but it's a great time. Mm -hmm. And I'd seen less of it than I remember. I don't think I'd ever caught the beginning at all. Um, (laughs) on TBS, I'd never seen the dog before. Yeah. Um, so I've never seen the beginning. But I, re- I had a great time. So I'm going a-, a minus, despite all the all the flaws, all the all the little nitpicks. I mean, it's a it's an A movie. Yeah, <clears throat> entirely agreed. Entirely agreed. Um, that's my grade is A, and I'm going with a straight A. It's not perfect by any means, but it's it's perfect carpenter. It's perfect horror kind of. You know, like you said, you have a locked door, but this is kind of a locked continent. You know, you have a locked <laughs> area because you know they can they can get out and explore, but it still feels so claustrophobic. And, you know that horror trope. You know the claustrophobic, the shut in, the suspicion that is that that grows throughout from person to person, and how they deal with that, the stress, the lack of sleep. This is gross, guys. As far as you know, you see the the blood and the gore and the monster. Uh, I mean, it's just almost perfect Carpenter to me. And, you know, and I was talking about the influence that you see in later movies, um, you know, Scream, the, the suspicions and the, the misdirections there. Uh, you have movies like, you know, Species. It's, it's a mimic movie. They kind of over-sexualize it, but it's a, it's, it's a, it's a replicant movie, essentially. Uh, mimic, you know, they kind of went with the CSI angle on it. Uh, the different things like that, how influential this was, uh, it really impressed me. Hmm. Okay. You know, I do agree with you guys. The thing really has this interesting place in the horror sci-fi genre. You know, at, at first, it's a little bit of an homage, you know, to the 1951, the thing from another world. So it's got that little bit of story that you can pull from that. But this movie, being 1982, fits really neatly between Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979 and James Cameron's Aliens in 1986. And I think that the thing captures a little bit about what Scott was doing. And I really wonder if 
Cameron got some echoes for that second Aliens movie with the group being together and that dynamic of the characters. In the isolated uh, base. Yeah, yeah, I just, I, I, I really, that, that jumped out at me. Um, you know, it is this interesting mix of mystery and suspense thriller. It is, it's a base under siege, essentially. That's a classic trope of movies and television shows. It's almost like a bottle episode when you think about it. Um, but I think it falls into cult classic. Think about how many places we see the thing. Stranger Things season three. Scott Clark was sitting on the couch with his date watching the thing. There's actually, in my Keep It 100 for Lady Parts, there's a place that they're sitting and they're watching the thing. And I started cracking up because I'm like, yeah, I've got to use this now. Um, but it still works in its construction. There's a few things that don't hold up. I went a little lower, guys. I went B+. Plus. Um, there's some character issues that don't stick with me. So, yeah. Windows is kind of the deal packed with this movie, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I was getting some echoes with yeah. that. And it may just be because it wasn't too long ago that we talked about aliens. And so it was still kind of fresh in the palette. So. But, you know, as I was talking about influence and you brought up so many things and how much you see the, uh, the movie in different things. But I mean, how much of an influence were the monsters in this on the big monster in Stranger Things season mm-hmm. three, you know, that just that, you know, or even, you know, with the, uh, with the Demogorgon, the face opening, yeah. there's so many other aliens you see, you know, it's well, so yeah, the, influential. The, the dog, when the dog transforms, mm-hmm. it's doing the Demogorgon face opening. That's, it's exactly the, the look, the, the, it's even the oh, same, yeah. like the three, like the unfolding mm-hmm. flower petal looking mm-hmm. monstrosity. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, one thing I know they didn't need to keep cool in the South Pole we're the fans. But we've got some. So let's go get them. So here we go. Okay, and I'm up with the fan, the first fan. You know, there was, there was so much, like you guys talk about, so much that is dated, but there's still so much cool in here. There's so much that don't quite work, but you still fall into the suspicion and the intensity and the things of it. But one of the things I thought was really, really interesting was how the aliens were directed um, as they were growing into the people. To mimic them, essentially, you know, when they were more alien, they were, you know, screaming or, you know, not able to communicate and just kind of walking and moving jerkily and weird. When they were more advanced, you know, they could they could converse, they could, you know, um, interact more naturally. Uh, but you still had that awkwardness. You know, you see the Nor- Norwegian flying in on the helicopter trying to shoot the dog, and I'm like, okay, he should not have a gun. Be in this position, be in a helicopter, and be that bad a shot. You know, you're going after the, you know, and then you find out, oh, he's, you know, the the alien mimicked into him. Uh, but yet, how the actors were able to develop that, you know, along with the makeup and the uh, and the special effects, and just just even, you know, their acting to to tell you that story of how that progression was. I thought that was pretty neat. You know, and my fan kind of goes along with that. It's just the story itself. You know, the story holds up. Yeah, I mean, the effects can be dated, and a few of the acting choices can be also. But the story itself, the series of events in this plot works. The the desolate place, the mystery of who's infected, uh, the infighting, that, that's such a part of the human condition in basically extreme stress situations it still works you know as i said this was my first time watching this movie all the way through you know so i hadn't seen the beginning i've probably seen a couple of the the gory horror parts because they show up in so many other places you know and that's probably the only place i've seen this so to go through it the first time you know i jumped when i needed to jump i was guessing through the whole thing to the final bit so to me the plot really still holds up Okay. Um, you both kind of. I, I had two options just in case. I'm going with my second option here. Um, and I, I want to give a shout out, though, to Kurt Russell's hat. Yes. You know, that thing was. I don't know how that made it into a movie in any year. 
Um, but it was just, it was, it's worth looking at. Well, you know, it's kind of its own character. It must have done the audition really well. Yeah. Um, but I want, I want to give a shout out as far as my, my fan to the, uh, the special effects. Um, they're not great by today's standards. Um, I'm not sure how good they were by 1982 standards because I, I was two years old. Um, <laughs> not, not super plugged into the state of special effects. Um, but it's very clear from this entire movie that John Carpenter had, um, and he's basically MacGyvering a whole movie. Because mm-hmm. um, it's very clear they filmed in probably Colorado in the summer. Because there's not a second that you see anybody's breath <laughs> in the cold, you know? It's not even cold. Um, I think some of them looked sweaty because they were having to bundle up like they were in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And it clearly wasn't cold. Um, I mean, some of the guys looked unhealthy. They were sweating a little bit. Um I mean, the special effects clearly they look like they didn't have a huge budget, but they were super creative. And I feel like those those constraints that Carpenter often worked with because he didn't work well with others and didn't play well with the studio system. So he was, he was always working under budget constraints. I feel like it brings out a lot of creativity in, in people. And I think Carpenter really shines. Like, I mean, he can you give him some bubble gum and summer in Colorado and some paper clips, and he'll make you some scary monsters. You know, so I just I just I love that you can you can see. That you know, there, I had about fifteen dollars to make this movie, and like ten of them went to Kurt Russell. But, <laughs> but the special effects still work. They're scary. Things are creepy when they're supposed to be creepy. Yeah. Um, the the even like the big alien, you know, UFO. It looks pretty cool, mm-hmm. you know. And they didn't clearly it didn't have two nickels rubbed together. So I mean, I just want to give them, you know, I'm 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 kind of impressed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for a uh, for a 1982 movie, you know, the effects were what they were, and. They they do the job even today. You know, I finished watching the movie a little bit for, before we recorded, and it's they hold up. They're creepy. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. And and just that that just to back on the hat that was an amazing hat. <laughs> but between the hat and him flying a helicopter, I wanted to hear him yell "Yo, Joe." You know, <laughs> in a real cowboy accent. And I I love that he still had the snake pliskin hair and beard too. Yes, just, yes. Yep. Well, aside from being the influence of Metal Gear's, uh, you know, Solid Snake, uh, we do know that <laughs> Kurt Russell is at least three out of five G.I. Joe characters. <laughs> <coughs> yep. <laughs> well, much like uh, Wilford Brimley's diabetes, I uh, <laughs> think we should go to the kitchen and get some pans. But we're putting no salt on whatever's in that pan. No. None. No salt. <laughs> no salt. Cut out the sugar. No all salt. right. Um, okay. Here, here, here's what's going to be really interesting. All right. Jamie's fan has is my pan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the story in this works. And there are some special effects that work. There's an award for that. And we'll talk about it. But... You could tell that, like, and I agree, you could tell they, they didn't have two nickels to do this. Everything looked glossy, and it was just weird looking. It, and it almost looked like, like some type of, of statue because of the sheen on everything. It, even the, the, the person, when, when he was dead and they found the body and that looked like the head had split into two pieces. I mean, it looked like polystyrene that, that had been spray painted or something. I you mean, you could tell what was plastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and like I said, I get why, you know, and I'm not going to be too harsh on it. Uh, I mean, face it, I've said on here, I love classic dog. Who so stones and glass houses, all right? <laughs> but uh, but you know some work, some don't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Sammy, don't throw a glass house when you live in a rock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, my, my favorite bad one was when they're doing the autopsy. And they get the little thing and they lift up, you know, this little rubber. They can put just pull a gl- gloppy thing out. Yep, same internal organs as a human. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and nothing's connected. <laughs> just just lift them right out. Got <laughs> like, at the butcher shop in Denver. <laughs> it's not a human organ. <laughs> that got me thinking about with the trills in Star Trek when they lift up the flap on the belly and pull out the. <laughs> You know the the root, <laughs> the the root looking symbiote. <laughs> Some people can MacGyver better than others. True. Um, but my my pen is to do with the logic of the alien 
uh, transformations. Um, sometimes it was like the whole like you know remember Wilfred Brimley's speech. It's imitating us. It's a, you know okay. So it turns into a perfect dog until it doesn't. Because the whole remember the remember the autopsy. Everything is perfectly human. It's indistinguishable. Mm-hmm. Human organs are like or it turns into a giant monster. From the inside out. If it's turning into a giant monster from the inside out, it doesn't have a liver, you know? <laughs> and like at the end of the movie, it's never turning into anything. It's just a giant monster. So is it an imitation monster or is it just monstrous? And I don't think that the the logic of what the aliens are and do, it doesn't track all the way through. And I, I, multiple times I got pulled out of the movie just scratching my head. I'm like, no, hold on. <laughs> that That's not how... You set this up differently. You you did that, not me. I'm not the problem here. You know? Yeah, that. But I don't. I don't have a lot. I mean, we know what the budget is. Um, the cast is pretty good for the budget they've got. Performances are solid. Um, but yeah, just the logic. I mean, the, the sci. I mean, you when you bring sci-fi into your horror, the sci-fi has to hold up, and it doesn't quite hold up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I did a little bit of a looking while you guys were were talking there. Fifteen million was the budget. So what? Eight to ten went to Kurt Russell. Um, One point <laughs> five went to Creature Effects. Hmm. So ten percent of the budget went to Creature Effects. So you're looking like you said, ten to Kurt Russell, <laughs> the other two to Wilford Brimley. Uh, you know, well, they, there were a lot of effects though. <clears throat> yeah, there was quite a few effects. Yeah. It was. It really surprised me how effect heavy this movie was. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> that and the helicopters. Yeah. Very helicopter heavy. <laughs> <laughs> You, you could tell helicopters were a thing. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this movie gets me, uh, my pan is a lot of problems with 70s movies that, that I think that kind of grew into the early 80s. There's just no hope. You know, there's, you, there's just not going to be a happy ending. You know, it's, it's not going to be okay. They, they may find and kill the thing, but, you know, you know they're not going to be okay. Um, you know, and and all through there's just so grim and just not fun. You know, it was it was very interesting. It kept me, you know, latched into it, but it just wasn't the thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a memorable ending though. Yeah, 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 the ending was, but like I said, it's just it was just so grim, and you and you and you had that. That was kind of a trope. That was kind of a thing with those movies, you know, Death Wish, uh, Dirty Harry, all this stuff. Was just so, uh, you know. Yeah, well, it was a gritty era. And if you yeah. think about it, everything during that period of time was left open for sequels. Mm-hmm. That would that was a big thing in the eighties, especially is especially after Star Wars was successful and and you know Empire and eighty and and all that kind of stuff. You saw more and more sequels. You know, I mean, face it, we're on what Friday the Thirteenth, thirty six, or something <laughs> like that. You know, that idea of sequels was a big thing, yeah. and so I think they left those open endings just in case the movie did well and the studio came back. Well, speaking of budgets uh, and things, they were pretty sure not to get a sequel because they made this thing for fifteen million. It made nineteen point six in its theatrical run. <laughs> So I'm sure the investors weren't thrilled. No. You know. Well, compared to Big Trouble, that's a killing. I mean, they're knocking it out of the park. <laughs> All righty, guys. Are we ready to hang some awards on this thing? Totally. Well, uh, first out of the gate is best performance, and I get the privilege of saying Kurt Russell's name first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, by the way, I, I went back and checked. This is the sixth Kurt Russell performance we've reviewed in our <laughs> <laughs> the life of our podcast. <laughs> Fox of the Hound, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, Tombstone, Sky High, and Guardians Volume 2. So you what you're saying is we may need to quit connecting Keanu so connecting <laughs> Kurt. <laughs> We're just doing it anyway. The, the Kurt connection. 
<laughs> but but Kurt, I mean, Kurt Russell's really good in this. I mean, he's good as like the the stoic. I want to stay in my ha- in my little cabin and drink. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure you would have a little cabin in Arkansas <laughs> by yourself. But um, but as this sort of gruff, you know, alpha male that the other guys look to, even though he's not in charge and he's not, he doesn't have like the the you know the chain of authority doesn't you know stop with him. Mm-hmm. He's just a helicopter pilot. But he's just the the man of action that people look to, and and he he embodies that, and it works. Well, I'm going to be the first one to not say Kurt Russell uh, for best performance. Um, I'm going with uh, Thomas Waits, Windows. Um, I think earlier we had kind of referred to him as the, the the Bill Paxton almost of the movie, and he's you know, he, he's kind of the. I mean, Wilford Brimley eating his oatmeal, Doris Quake Rhodes, you know, opening up the Jello monster, you know, getting out the, you know, the the plastic operation pieces, uh, without touching the sides. <laughs> Um, you know, he he really uh, was able to convey some a, a lot of emotion, a lot of uh, competency. I felt, and and even standing up, you know, to Kurt Russell, he was he was kind of the the, the beta male. He was kind of like the the next coolest guy on the on the pole there. Did he look familiar? A lot of people. I I went back and forth. I'm to be every time I somebody's face like reappeared on the screen. I'm like. Is that, is that, so I was all over IMDb. So he, he, a lot of the guys had a familiar face, but I could not place any of them. So where okay. is this guy? Okay. Perm the hair up a little more, shave him, put him in a vest without a, t- without a shirt on. He was one of the warriors. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> cool. I can see that now. Well, I'm glad to see he made it out of Antarctica and was able to come out and play. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, so so we started best performance with Kurt Russell. We're going to end it with Kurt Russell. And if we did a, a, a Kurt connection, I've already got our, our segue. It's time to wrestle up the Kurt connection. <laughs> but um, but honestly, Kurt, face it, this is a Kurt Russell film. Um, the majority of the moments are his. Uh, this is definitely him. I mean, he he uses every one of those to make McCready cool and that that kind of 80s action hero you know this character fits perfect between big trouble and escape from new york and it fits into that kurt russell action hero that i think that hollywood wanted him to go towards Mm -hmm. that somewhere got derailed and he just called captain ron yeah and he went a totally different direction (laughs) um martin short was in that wasn't he (laughs) but but it was, I mean, it's like they started out for him to be this 80s action hero. And there was a swerve somewhere in that career. But, you know, this role in, as McCready fits there. And so I like the performance. Kurt Russell does what Kurt Russell wants to do. He didn't have <laughs> you making movies for 15 cents with John Carpenter. But he right. did it over and over, over and over. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. are you saying he went overboard? <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, guys. Well, next up we have best scene, and uh, <clears throat> I'm I'm going with the burning down of the base and the final alien reveal. You know, they're going through drop, dropping dynamite in, setting everything on fire, busting open kerosene gas cans uh, to wipe this thing out to annihilate any um, tissues that could remain, so it can't freeze and reanimate later. Or were they just getting rid of the set so they didn't have to pay for cleanup? (laughs) (laughs) Best scene. All right. You know, go ahead. No, no, you're fine. All right. I was going to say, you know, the the battle scene's really cool, but I think the one that sticks out the most to me is that tension as McCready is testing the blood in the Petri dishes. Yeah, that was a good one. You know, who is it? As he heats the cable using a flamethrower. I mean, how 80s action star can you get there? Um, But it just, I mean, every time he starts putting it into the blood of the Petri dish and you see the reaction of the person, uh, I just, I love that tension. You know, which member of the crew is it? Is it all of them? You know, it's that edge of your seat. and, And that makes that scene just so intense for me, I think. We know what was interesting with that scene is <clears throat> even as he was testing the blood, the persons whose blood he was testing were was still nervous 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, they see, and it reminded me of recently of a show that came out, and you know, when Loki is getting ready to step through the detector, if he's a robot or not. <laughs> says, do a lot of people not know that they're robots? <laughs> do a lot of people not know that they're you know alien mimics? You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that that was my my best scene as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just so it's the tensest moment in yeah. the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I love like you know before we've had like the science people like you know trying to come up with tests and like I love the working man logic, you know everything that solves this stuff it fights back against. Well, let's solve a part of it, you know. Like I just the, the I mean just the blue collar logic of it it mm-hmm. makes sense, you know. And then it's just it's just such a I mean Dwayne used the word earlier it's claustrophobic tense mm-hmm. scenes they're all you know <laughs> literally tied together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got the the big flamethrower that he could just aim at the people tied together if he wanted to, you know, just fire it up. Just everybody, yeah, yeah, and just barbecue, yeah, yep. And I thought it was really neat too that he was able to determine that it wasn't a, you know, like you, you know, they could cut their finger. You know, I I can you know hurt a portion of myself, but it's still, but how each little molecule of this thing was was reactive. Yeah, that scene really works. Yeah. yeah. It really does. Sam, best character. All right, best character. I went a little sideways on this. I liked Clark, played by Richard Masser. Okay. <clears throat> um, he doesn't have a huge role, you know, but Masser is just one of those great character actors. We see him in lots of 80s movies. A lot of times he's a dad. Uh, you know, he's... A, I think I can't remember the movie right off the bat. There's one in the back of my head that I'm thinking about him that he's the father figure in it. But to have him as the, this person in the middle of this, all of this grim, he brought a little heart, I thought. He really cared about his dogs. And I thought that brought a little bit of heart to to sometimes a bleak movie. So I went with uh, Clark. Well, I went with um, Blair, played by... Wilford Brimley. Um, I, I love that he was the one who, he, he, he first caught on to what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the, and he was the guy that first really, like, understood the implications. Like, if this is what this thing is, and it's this good at what it does, then we, we have to do everything possible to make sure it doesn't get off this continent. Because it's, it's the end of the human race. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the end of all life on Earth. Um, and he goes to the, what, you know, the links. That he has to, he goes crazy. I mean, he's tearing everything up, destroying everything because, like, we've all got to die. Just in case we don't know who's infected, we all have to die. We've got to destroy everything, and want people not to come here. I, I just, I, I, I love that 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 character understood that the stakes, and and just was willing to do whatever it took. Yeah, and he planted that seed of suspicion. Yeah, toward everyone else, with everyone else. That's- yeah. Could be any one of us. Yeah. Yep. And that was almost my best scene because just Wilford Brimley losing <laughs> it and like destroying everything in the room with an axe. That was almost my best scene. I mean, just because it, it's so out of what I see character for, for you know, Brimley. I mean, it, there's a scene in a movie where Captain Diabetes, Wilford Brimley, is attacking Snake Pliskin with an axe. I mean, <laughs> yep. We don't deserve that. <laughs> And he didn't even eat the last of his oatmeal. <laughs> uh, my best uh, character, um, and and I went with character instead of performance for Kurt Russell's McCready, you know, because he is the most competent character. He is the alpha, you know. He's he's who you want to be in this movie. You know, he's the Han Solo, you know, that you want to be in this. Yeah, that's just the only reason. With the great hair, the great hair, a great beard, great beard, and the great hat, and a great hat. That's right. <laughs> and you worked in a Star Wars reference. <laughs> Well, I brought in Doctor Who a few times, so it's only right that he brings in Star Wars. So. <laughs> well, our next one is best quote, and due to the family-friendly nature of our podcast, um, we had to be selective. <laughs> this was 1982. <laughs> um, but going back to the scene that we were talking about earlier, where um, uh, Wilford Brimley's destroying a you know hot, hypothetically high-tech room, um, and he's he's yelling kind of a, kind you know. In a very manic manner, <laughs> he's explaining things to the rest of the of the the crew down there. He says, "Do you think that thing wanted to be an animal? No dogs make it a thousand miles through the cold. No, you don't understand. That thing wanted to be us. If a cell gets out, it could imitate everything on the face of the earth, and nothing can stop it." 
I just, I mean, it's a pretty succinct way to explain like the danger, not just they are in the entire earth. Yeah. My, my quote sort of has to do with, with that, but it's laid out in a much calmer uh, area. But you know, when, when the guy gets his uh, journal after the dissection, you know, and he's, and he's laying out all of the things to Kurt Russell in the, uh, in the snowmobile, you know, in the the entreated vehicle. And in the last line, he says, it's not dead yet. Oh my! You know that's yeah. Just the entire implication from that on. It's not dead yet. You know, so he knew what he was doing. He knew, you know, the doctor knew, but he also knew that they had that challenge. And, and he's right. It's not dead yet. You know, but he had he had you know documented these things, lining out you know the the mimicry, the uh, imitation. Uh, things with the dogs but it's not dead yet and since it's a carpenter movie they could have just been in bum 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 i did miss the carpenter score yeah the music was quite weird in this yeah for a little different all right um i had to amend my best quote a little bit because of the nature of this movie uh, you know, I mentioned this movie is full of great character actors. Um, Donald Moffat, who played Gary, is another one of those. And, I, you know, he's another face that you recognize, that you've seen in a million different movies. He's usually the grumpy old man. Um, but he was just such a no-nonsense type of character throughout this entire movie. So when he loses it, and the way he loses it is why I chose the quote. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of the winter tied to this couch and just to have him just lose it there at the end. I just thought it was so good. Uh, It just, I loved it. Yeah. And he's being so gentle and calm. Yes. I mean, the whole lead up, the whole lead up. I know you all have had a rough time. I know you're stressed out, but you You can find it within yourself. If you don't mind, please. All right. Well, we've had, um, we've, we've talked about some of the special effects that don't work and some that do. So Dwayne, what was your best special effect? The head escape. 100%. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. When, when, when that head pulls itself free and starts crawling across the floor, I'm, I'm in. I'm all in. Just just go ahead. Buy me, give me tickets to the sequel. Let's do this. You know? I love that it flips upside, it flips down. upside down. Uh-huh. It's like the spider It's like an yeah. upside down spider with, with hands growing out of its... Nick. So, so of the 1.4 million for special effects, 1.3 went to that head. <clears throat> I was thinking more like 30 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think about it, I mean, I, I agree completely. That that is just hands down the best special effect. That's the one that works. That's the one that's referenced every time. <laughs> it was when I mentioned Stranger Things. That was the scene they showed in Stranger Things. That was the scene they showed in in Lady Parts. And I mean, <laughs> that scene stands out to everybody. And it's just considering that was a practical effect. I mean, yeah. there's no CGI, yeah, there's no CGI at this CGI point. Okay, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, this is the next step up from Harryhausen and stop motion, okay? But it worked. I had a, that's the right answer, 100%, all day, every day. My runner-up, though, was when the doctor was trying to, like, resuscitate that guy, and his chest opened up and then bit off his oh. arms. <laughs> that was almost mine, too. Yeah, that was almost That mine. was good. Yeah. All right, so um, there are some, uh, some decisions were made in the making of this movie. Decisions were made. Um, yep. And so our last award is Best Head Scratcher. And... I gave this movie a really good grade, but there was more than one moment where I was scratching my head. So, Sam, what was your best head scratcher? Okay. So, I think my best head scratcher, you know, Jamie, you had mentioned that you had never seen the beginning of the movie, right? And and I hadn't either, obviously. This is my first watch. But I just thought we spent a whole lot of time at the beginning watching a helicopter fly after <laughs> that dog and shoot. I mean, I under... 
I mean, I don't understand. We used a lot of time that could have cleared up and been used in other places just to get through the idea that, oh, they're shooting at the dog because it's not really the dog. Um, I just, I don't know. I, the, the whole time it, it was going through, I was like, man, this wouldn't fly now. Nobody would wants to see somebody shoot at a dog the, the, the first five minutes of this movie. <laughs> so This is probably John Wick's least favorite movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, and it's not just that scene. There's a whole lot of just cameras watching helicopters fly slowly mm-hmm. <laughs> through the first like mm-hmm. act of this movie. I mean, there's a lot of it and they linger. Um, but so mine is like Kurt Russell's big plan at the end. Um, I don't quite get it. It's like, all right, it wants to freeze. So let's burn everything. I'm like, um, how is that a solution? Cause like, I you're not gonna. It's you're not gonna burn every molecule of the alien. It's not just indoors, <laughs> and um, it's like yeah, let's just burn it all. And then when Child shows back up, I know I know the ending is iconic. It doesn't quite make sense to me though. So if if he's fairly certain that Child's is, um, you know, an, an imitation, then he should have just shot him, yeah. and then shot himself just in case he's contaminated as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but like no, I'm tired. I would just didn't look at you till I die. Yeah, and then and then you'll you'll survive because apparently the imitations can survive at mm-hmm. much lower temperatures than humans. Because the dog, remember the dog was okay, right. he mm-hmm. shouldn't have been able to make it, so they can survive at lower temperatures than humans. So I'm just I'm going to give you a free pass. It's no big deal. I'm like, what? I, I get it's a cool. It's cool. I mean, I, the rule of cool, I get it, but like, I don't. That's not. They went. Think about how many of his friends he's killed. <laughs> they burned everything they brought to Antarctica. It's like, I'll just look at you. Pretty sure you're an alien, but I'll just look at you until I die. (laughs) Yeah, that was one thing that puzzled me, too, is, you know, why why didn't they, you know, leap into the fire, you know, if if they had to burn everything. Yeah. Instead of, like you said, you know, and even if they would have shot themselves, you know, the the mimic would have still gotten away, essentially, but, you know, just jump into the fire. But every time they set someone on fire, you had three guys with extinguishers spraying them out. <laughs> I thought the goal was to destroy this thing. You know, but every time somebody got on fire, yeah. let's put them out. You know? Yeah, there's a reason they weren't completely dead. Yeah, there's a, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. They weren't letting the fire do its work. Okay, okay, I know, okay, I know you're on the fire squad here, you're on the fire safety team, but we got to get through this part. Oh, you can tell they had drilled. Yeah. I mean, they, oh, were they, yeah. Drilled. they knew what they were doing. <laughs> Pass. Pull, aim, sweep, you know. The safety <laughs> Pull, captain aim, squeeze, had done his job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, that's, yeah, that was, that was mine. You know, why, why did they not, you know, why did they not, you know, let the fire do its job, you know, earlier in the movie? And then they may not have had the, the tissues going on. Also, what puzzled me was, why were the, why was the alien even here? We see the craft coming in at the beginning of the movie. They kind of alluded that it may have been here longer and just kind of, hibernating in the snow but you see the craft it's a very very intro coming in are they here for resources are they just hunting or are they on vacation you know didn't land in hawaii landed in antarctica <laughs> well i've you know, got a question GPS about that up, you know? so when we see the the spaceship coming in it's kind of it's zigzagging kind of, and wobbling mm-hmm. was that because of the low budget or because we were supposed to think there was something wrong with it and it was crashing. Mm. So I'm wondering if we're supposed to gather from that it was already messed up and it crashed on Earth. That, that's, a, that's a neat take. I hadn't really thought about mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, I, I was thinking initially, oh, they're showing me this erratic movement in the stars you know, because it's essentially a speck of light. You know, just to differentiate it from a star or a comet going in, you know, which would a meteorite, you know, which would... Get, Pass a straight line, but you know the the uh, the messed up part in the crash landing makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. it really does. It really or does. they had fifteen dollars and it, they couldn't and make it move smoothly. Straight. <laughs> they had to go all Plan Nine from outer space and <laughs> do what you have to. <laughs> Maybe the alien had one too many cocktails. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to join Kurt Russell in his shack. <laughs> well, an actor we know uh, we're glad wasn't around when this movie was filmed for, due to the harming of all the dogs was Mr. Keanu Reeves. So he didn't have to go John Wick on uh, John Carpenter. But where would he fit into the thing? Okay, so there's an actor in this movie who has 336 acting credits to his name. And it's not Kurt Russell. He works a lot less than you think. He only has 102 acting credits. Hmm. Wow. 
And that's counting all the Disney stuff. Um, <laughs> that's 98 right there. Yeah, yeah really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you already stole my thunder on my joke, Sammy. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Kurt Russell was very selective, only picking gems like Captain Ronald overboard. <laughs> 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 um, but I-, I found it surprising that there was an actor with that many credits to his name, considering that this cast is mostly, um, hey, I know that guy, yeah. guys. Um, or people who are complete strangers to me. Um, I've seen a lot of 80s movies, especially 80s action movies. I didn't recognize all these faces. Um, but the connection has some very notable credits. Uh, he was in They Live, Armageddon, The Princess and the Frog, Community, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Pitch Black, and all those sequels, uh, Requiem for a Dream, and There's Something About Mary. Um, it's got some range. Or he's a bit player who's appeared in almost everything. <laughs> There's a whole lot of nonsense on that filmography, too. (laughs) But in The Thing, Keith David played Childs. But, I'm bad at math, I'm not going to guess. Much later, he played Lindale in (laughs) My Hobby Horse, My Go-To, My Crutch, The Replacements, (laughs) starring (laughs) our beloved Keanu. (gasps) I'm so thankful for that movie. (laughs) I think it's like the fifth time it's been on <laughs> Yeah, the replacements in the gift and uh, Pixar has been our... Toy Story 4, yeah. Dracula. <laughs> and Dracula. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of those with gigantic casts. That's really ill. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our Keanu connection. And I hope you guys enjoyed our review of the thing. And I hope you guys have had, had a chance to watch and enjoy this, uh, you know, gem of horror again. Um, it really was a lot of fun. So, coming up next week, we're going to be delving into the news. Yes. Uh, and the and two weeks after that, we're going to be reviewing the beginning of Spielberg month. We're yes. beginning with Jaws, and so all of July is going to be nonstop Spielberg. As we enter the height of summer, we're going to the height of summer blockbusters. Uh, the director there is Steven Spielberg, who has brought us so many gems. So we're starting off with Jaws. So we can't wait for that as you guys join us in the next couple weeks. Um, Jaws is not streaming anywhere, we found out. It's going to either be a purchase <laughs> or a, a, a rental, um, if, if you uh, have that there. But, uh, but we've given you a little extra time to get ready. Yeah, so, so get prepped with us as we... Prepare our news. Jamie? We're going to use our Google Foo as we keep it nerdy. 